Hello, my name is Stephen Wozniak, and I'm the guest host of Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art Podcast, featuring lively discussions with innovative and engaging fine artists, thought leaders, and active creatives about contemporary art and culture, which is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Over the decades, he has pointedly challenged ruling classes in many regions of the world, religious suppression, racism, and other horrors. Driven by a deep sense of humanity, his engagement, backed by a wide knowledge of history and pertinent literature, is reflected in his thoughtful writings on art and life. As he correctly says, everything is relevant. Hans Hacke. Artist, writer, curator, and professor Ken Lam routinely explores identity, immigration, language, spatial politics, and other issues in his conceptual and representational sculpture, performance, video, photography, and critical text. His artistic practice often raises questions that are left unanswered, prompting viewers to decipher potential solutions to significant universal concerns. Lum's work has been exhibited in such venues as the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, the National Gallery of Canada, and the Kunsthalle Vienna. His work has been featured in the Whitney Biennial, Documenta 11, and two Venice Biennales. His art is held in numerous permanent collections, including the National Gallery of Canada and the Elaine Cohen Collection in New York. Lum also co-curated several large art exhibitions, including Shanghai Modern, 1919-1949, and Monument Lab, a public art and history project in Philadelphia. Lum currently acts as Chair of Fine Arts at the University of Pennsylvania School of Design and holds an honorary doctorate degree from Simon Fraser University. He received the Guggenheim Fellowship, a Pew Fellowship, and is a Penn Institute of Urban Research Fellow. In late 2017, he was appointed an Officer of the Order of Canada. Right now, the Ramey Modern Museum is showing Death and Furniture, Ken Lum's major four-decade survey exhibition in Saskatoon, Canada, through May the 15th. I first met you through Rick Royale at his Royal Projects Art Gallery in downtown Los Angeles about five years ago or so. I believe you showed a few pieces of art in a group exhibition there, which included work from your strip mall sign series, shopkeeper sign series, and the particularly striking, the portrait repeated text series. These full-size, large format shop signs and images seem pretty familiar to most city dwellers until you actually stop and read them, which nobody does until they hang on a white wall in an art gallery, of course. Often, they allude directly to tragic wartime events, bleak immigrant prospects, work-related stressors, or conflicts of racial identity and things like that. What led you to create these works once you felt the need to express the issues that they would present? And how did you formally solve their actual creation and display? That's a big question because, um, you know, for any artist, uh, the, uh, the body of work is a continuum of development over a long period. And um, the language of the work, uh, it, you know, results in, in a oeuvre, right? You have to think about the, the entire path. Right. And I, would, I started um, in the... Uh, early 1980s like my first image text work was from about 84 if you can believe it mm -hmm. and uh you know in a slightly different form but it was still image text and um i was really interested in in that relationship uh not just because it's prevalent uh of its pre prevalent use within advertising and publicity culture this is obviously predating the internet in terms of uh, its uh, common presence 
And, um, but I was interested in it um, in terms of, um, you know, I guess I was interested in, in part because there, there was almost like a dictum within the art system itself that said uh, that at the end of the uh, period of conceptual art that said, uh, you know, in order to challenge the, the aestheticization of art, as if that was a that was a political problem, you need to incorporate text. It became a real kind of Duraguer uh, demand of so-called activist artists that without right. the presence of text, then you are relying on the operations of the picture system, and uh, and that's only furthering the patriarchy and the kind of problematic history uh, of uh, pictorialism and so on. I never totally subscribed to that, but I was under the influence of it because I was coming of age into the art world at that time uh, when that was still Probably. a kind of law. Yeah. But I, but I all, the part where I was ill at ease with was the idea that, well, te text itself is not some, um, uh, you know, unesthetic supplement. Text itself is an aesthetic component, right? Absolutely. And, and just as a picture itself, generates all kinds of text, right? And that's why we, you know, we have the cliche, the idiom, idiom of a picture tells us a thousand words, right? Because it's true. Right. And so I was really interested in the kind of imprecision of one to the other, especially when they butt up, right? And we all know this in terms of uh, picture captioning in newspapers. You caption it with a different turn of phrase. The picture is read a different way, just as the picture contributes to a reading of the caption in a different way. Right. So I'm interested in that, but I also think that is a verity of the way we we communicate as human beings one to the other anyway. Right. Right. Even if we're speaking the same language, you know, we never entirely know what the other person means right. by what is being said. It's always it's all there's always some leap, I would say, right. some conjecture, some some closing of, of a gap and 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 so on. And so that's what that that's how it led to that and it was this idea that the world is full of kinds of um fissures of imprecision in terms of of language and language of course is the great blanket that determines the pretty well everything because we can't break out of language then that means that the the world is full of contradictions and fissures and so on and i and what i was always interested in were these scenarios in real life that ostensibly may be about this traumatic moment, but then the longer we look at it, the, the longer we realize, or the more we realize that the traumatic moment is also full of um, unexpected, uh, effective generators. Like it could be funny. Right. It could be, could be sad, and then it, could, then it could shift back to something else, and so on. So I, I was always interested in that kind of relationship. Right. More so, more so than the what may seem like the objects obvious subject matter is more of the that dialogue. Um, right, but e but even in terms of the uh, any image text, right? The text is there. Of course, I compose the text, but then the, the and it's often as the, the the voice of that text, so to speak, is ascribed to the depicted person in the picture, picture half of it. And we we ascribe that picture, the depicted person as the subject of the of the voice, but it's not necessarily right. It's not necessarily, but also it's the reader or the viewer who's actually reading it out. So right. there's there's a, it is complicated, right? It right. could so the voice is actually said in someone's head unless the person wants to speak it out loud in the gallery, which is unlikely. Right? <laughs> so the voice is actually issuing from 
someone's cerebellum and uh, it's not a text which uh, that that person uh, wrote. It's the text I wrote, but it, but 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 it's enacted or embodied by the viewer, right? right? And then it's also ascribed to the picture. In 1990, a notable work of yours, Melly Shum Hates Her Job, which features a simple photographic image of a woman who somewhat scornfully looks back from her desk, along with some text that reiterates the title, was installed outside of the Wit de Wit Museum in Amsterdam. And after some complaints brought the image down, others contacted the museum to get it reinstalled, citing it as a necessary monument for the universal expression of hating jobs. It has since remained there for the last 32 years. And this and others of your work like it strike a, what I think are a pretty sincere chord with the public, unlike the sometimes elliptical and ironic 1960s early conceptual art that some of your work draws from. T tell me about the confluence of these two interests and expression the in-situ street access billboard versions of these works and the stark unvarnished format that they come in that draw from some of these uh, early conceptual pieces? I think, that, I think that's a good question, uh, Stephen. I mean, I, uh, for, uh, first of all, regarding the uh, Vit de Vit, you know, the work became so successful and it's not something I engineered. It was something I, I never anticipated. It just happened, yeah. It happened over time, and people fell in love with it. It's it's now seen in all the tourist brochures for Rotterdam. Yeah. You know, it's, there's a star in terms of all the things you should see in Rotterdam, and Meli Sham is I so cool. part, part of it. It's not my doing. It's just something about the work, as you say, touched people in a very deeply effective way. Yeah. And um, and uh, it took on a life of its own, and I don't take credit for it because it's – because the work has become something that's not even in my hands anymore. It's, all, it's owned by the people, sure. right? But uh, an interesting addendum to that is that, uh, you know, the, the, there was a renaming process of the museum, Vit de Vit Center for Contemporary Art, because Vit de Vit was a colonial officer who worked for the Dutch East India Company in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And so uh, during this, uh, you know, moment of um, social reckoning, it was deemed problematic as a name because he was, he was involved in the, you know, uh, the rapacious uh, removal of a lot of um, uh, valuable uh, cultural artifacts from yeah. Indonesia, which was which uh, overlapped with the slave trade and so on. Yeah, and so, and the name they came up with the Melly Center for Contemporary Art or 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 Quince Museum Melly, right? So the so the Witt David Center for Contemporary Art is now called after is now named after Melly Shum. That's it's, so awesome. Which, which is kind of a, a, a you know a. a, a another chapter in it. Now, in answer to your question, I guess what I was always interested in was, I'm interested in art, but I'm also interested in, um, in art not being, not performing as art for, even if for a moment, so that there's a disorientation or kind of uh, confusion or uncertainty on the part of the viewer with respect to what he or she or they are actually viewing. Right, so that the question of art becomes suspended. It's not imperative that they need to think about art at the moment when they first encounter the work. And the reason why I'm interested in that is because I think there's a greater openness and charge to the work, not knowing it's art. Now, of mm -hmm. course, so I like this idea that, and how do I do that? I'm interested in um, distilling uh, real stories, even if it's based on visual anecdote, 
that I see or experience, not just in my own life, but out in the world mm -hmm. and distilling that as something real. And I'm trying to approximate that real, not from a formal point of view, but from a, from a kind of psychological point of view mm -hmm. um, and bring that into the form itself, right? Now, ultimately it's the, it's the fact that it's a work of art that guarantees its, its registration. But right. I do like this idea of a deferral, so to speak, in terms of its misrecognition as something not quite art and maybe even uh, calling, because it calls up something that's not art. It calls up a moment of real life that's not art, but in the form of art. But, but the recognition of it as art is deferred, even if it's for a moment, right? And I think that's, that's what I've always been interested in doing. Ken, let's talk a little bit about the title of your comprehensive survey exhibition, Death and Furniture, now on view at the Remey Modern Museum through May the 15th. It derives from the Derek Edwards, Malcolm Ashmore, Jonathan Potter essay, Death and Furniture, The Rhetoric, Politics, and Theology of Bottomline Arguments Against Relativism from the collection History of the Human Sciences, I believe. Um, their paper sort of posits that death and furniture act as objections to relativism to the extreme, especially when couched in the socialized construction of truth, reality, science, social structures, and so on. How does your work play into or against this notion alluded to in the show title and this meaning, or does it refer to a different work altogether? Well, if that was an exegesis of Jacques Derrida's interest in the antipodes of furniture and death, then that may be true, right? I don't, I don't think it was a direct response, but it sort of right, posits right, that. Right, because you know, Jacques Derrida actually wrote essays on, on the, what he called the antipodes of um, furniture and death, right? Death being this kind of ubiquitous condition, which basically, you know, it's, it's the ultimate reality, right? We all confront or... or, or mortality and it's and, and it's a and it's a finality right uh when it comes and then furniture is like decorousness it's about the uh, the kind of ways we which we organize social space right during the time of life and so death and furniture it was actually something which uh, uh i didn't come up with the title by the way it was actually the curator um michelle jacques said oh uh I think that'd be a good, good title. And I said, oh, right. Are you talking about Jacques Derrida? And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say this in the podcast, but she said, oh, I didn't, I didn't know if he wrote something on it. I said, yeah, it's a perfect title because it's Jacques Derrida. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I, I think, I think uh, any, any extreme politics, whether it's left or right, but any extreme politics is often uh, premised on uh, ideas of, um, you know, ideas of uh, binaries and oppositions. Right, right. And uh, and uh, what Dorita was, you know, even though I, I said he referred to them as antipodes, Dorita was very much against binaries, right? And so- Yeah, and, absolutely. Right, yeah. so he always thought that, you know, the binary is the one, the, it's binary thinking that's the cause of so much malaise in the world. It right? is. Because it takes away all the gray areas in between and around as well. Yeah, okay. In this show, the new work series, Time, and again, uses your signature photo and text format, it seems to explore the intersection between the inevitable course of work and our personal stressors locked in step with that work, whether that work is workaday world work or it's 
you know, motherhood, it doesn't matter what it is. Is it, is that fair to say? Um, what, what else can you tell us about it? I mean, first of all, work and labor has been a kind of subset, recurring subset of my work for a long time, as is death, as right. is furniture. So it's all the kind of, you know, melancholic topics, yeah, yeah. which is probably true of my persona and character anyway, right? <laughs> but but I do think um, uh, the, uh, uh, that work came out of um, a response to pandemic time. You know, and uh, we see it in terms of, you know, like my work, Melly Sham hates her job, right? A lot of people hate their jobs and, and are making demands uh, that no two people were imprisoned uh, to not question, right? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I have a crummy job. I'm not paid very well. I have no benefits, but I need to survive and I, I'm hungry and uh, I can't leave it. I can't, and I can't make demands of these uh, mega corporations are making tons of money, right. Um, right, and so on. And I think it's actually a healthy thing uh, right now where there's lots of demand for jobs. Absolutely. You know? yeah. So, you're right, but but the way the system works is that, you know, it's now seen as a problem because there's so, so much demand for jobs. It, it's better to have uh, more, um, uh, you know, a, 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 an excess of labor compared to the jobs. Compared to the job but, needs, yeah, exactly. Right. And like that's kind of a law of capitalism, I would say. All right. So, so it came out of that response and um, a pandemic time um, that, uh, you know, you know, I, I, like you, like many people, I felt kind of privileged because I'm working on Ivy League University and, right. and um, you know, I could I had I could stay home if I wanted to and and so on. So I, I was able to keep my job. Right. And so I, I was but I was thinking about all these other uh, people out there. Right. I have a, I have some friends who they're not close friends, but I have some friends and they work two part time jobs in fast food. Right. And, um, you know, I, I started thinking about them during this pandemic time because they're they were at health risk. Yeah, oh, yeah, That's absolutely. Right? right. And so on. And so it was a response to that, this yeah. whole series. Since 1978, you have reformatted contemporary furniture such as geometric unitary sectional couches and created symmetrically closed circuits, so to speak, whereby users cannot access them, rest, and enjoy their luxury. Instead, we're presented with a beautiful, if not solemn, minimal sculpture in the round that audiences may begrudge and marvel at simultaneously. What was your original intent and idea about these pieces, about these eventually series that came out of these? I got to see one of them that was a is either a green or a blue sectional at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in early 2018, and I loved it and have since been a fan of all of those. So tell me a little bit about those. Well, it goes way back. It goes back to even even my student days because the first furniture piece I did was in my first art class. <laughs> as an undergrad, as a yeah undergrad. I didn't I didn't have an art degree. I have a science degree. In science degree. That's right. Right. And so I took some a couple of art classes and I did one uh, furniture work. And um, and this is because I, I didn't know anything about art. And I was learning um, about um, uh, American avant-garde art, European avant-garde art. And um, and I was really especially taken by uh, minimal art, not because I liked it, but because it was just so diametrically opposite from what I 
what little I knew about art. And I kept thinking, this is like as far from art as I can imagine. <laughs> if I never took an art class, yeah. right? It was more like that. And, and, and basically that was true for me because that was really my first introduction. But there was something fascinating about the theory behind it. I was reading a lot about it, uh, you know, the kind of um, uh, discomfort of announce, acknowledging its, its uh, social, social referencing Right. And so it became abstract and, and so on. And uh, I, look at, I looked at these configurations and, and iterations of uh, minimal art. And then, I, I don't know, I, 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 there was a home furniture flyer that those days they still passed around for flyers in people's homes. And then I saw this uh, sectional sec, uh, f- uh, furniture advertised in, in this catalog, I guess, that was distributed to my home. And I went, gee, what if I just yeah. double that, I'd get a total, it would follow the logic of minimal art. Right. Right. And then I thought more about it and I realized it also lo- followed the logic of minimal art in terms of where minimal art goes. Minimal art goes from private exhibition spaces, often to private collector's homes. Right. And so what if, but what if, but furniture itself are the implements of a home, which is a private unit in the, right. in the way we think of uh, capitalism. Right and uh, unit of consumption, and so I thought there were parallels in terms of the, in terms of even the kind of spatial trajectory, of furniture with minimal sculptures, and so it evolved from that. But when I first started doing it, this is like the first one I did was 1978, if you can believe. And then uh, people didn't like it. People wasn't that they didn't like it, but people didn't. I like I showed in uh, Artist Space, which is a really great space in New York had absolutely no response, right? People, <laughs> right, and so on. And I can sort of see it, right? People are now kind of used to it maybe. And but at the time people just thought, it wasn't that they didn't like it. It was more like they couldn't even, couldn't even see it. Yeah. Even though they were standing in front of it, it was really kind of weird, yeah. right? I, okay, you, it's, it's simple and uh, okay, you're insisting this is art and- Right. Uh, right, and, um, and maybe it's in hindsight, it's, it, it looks uh, from present day, especially it, you, you can say, okay, well, yeah, it's clearly a work of art. But at that time, for a very long time, people, it wasn't that they dismissed it. It was just that they, it was like, wow, it just passed me right they by. Get it. Yeah. yeah. Get it. I mean, it's too, it's so, like you said, it's so, it's so present in their domestic setting that to see it in this other setting and to see it in this other format you know, it wasn't wildly mutated enough or it wasn't, yeah. or it didn't present as art. It was too close to home, so to speak. No pun yeah. intended. I mean, I don't know. That's it, it, it was also, it also, you know, it, it's, it's generally the furniture was quite banal because it's, it's, you know, middle-class or whatever, even if it was like expensive furniture is still banal. It's a banal kind of arrangement because, sure, sure. you know, it's for a corner or it's for a section of a large living room. Right. And but it, it did catch on, though. Somebody did get it at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Continued but, to make uh, it show. I guess what I'm saying is it took at least like 12 years. Yeah, wow. You know? And then people, and now people ask, every time I do a show, people say, can you do a furniture work too? Oh, of course. Because now I know. So for me, it's a little bit weird, right? Because I'm thinking, wow, I, 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 there used, what, was a time some time ago now where I'd say, well, you know, I'd really like to do, I'd like to do a furniture work. Uh, maybe not. Let's just, uh, you know. And and now it's like, can you do but, a furniture work? It's the opposite. Right. And are you past it? Are you just sort of like, yeah, I'll do it? But well, no, I think no, I don't do it because I I never do anything just for the sake of doing it. I do, 
I do it because I think it's still relevant. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. That is right. the way we organize space. That, that, right. The kind of psychology or even psychosis, the pathology of private space is still, the, still an issue for me, right. right? And I think it's still relevant. Let's talk a little bit about your process in creating works. I think that conceptual artists are sometimes given a hard time for not handling the physical objects that they make, but still other special preparation and handling are required for some of their work and certainly for your work. For the portrait repeated text series, how did you select the models used in the photos, the locations, the lighting, the color field background, the typesetting, layout, font, dimensions, installation locations? Do you shoot the models with a camera yourself, or did you? Um, tell us a little bit about the making of the works from start to finish, including the production shoot. Well, I did all the photographs. I used a large format camera. I know how to use that camera. Sure, sure. I, I, I just never fetishized the hand. A lot of people really fetishize it, like, you know, I know how to build a house and so right. on, right? <laughs> well, I, I built my basement. Yeah, but I don't. I don't tell people that. And uh, and also, if you go to my website, you'll see that I can draw. I used to right. be, you know, I drew. Uh, uh, you know, I, I can draw. I can draw you right now. In fact, right, I'm quite well, realistically, sure. right. And I can draw. No, but people are surprised, right? They and I can do clay modeling of uh, of heads and so on because I was trained like that. And then people are always surprised. Well, you can do that. Well, I didn't know that, right? <laughs> As if, but I didn't feel like that was so important to 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 what I wanted to say as an artist. Right. So and I don't see why that should be uh, a part of your credentials. Right. To prove that you're an artist. Right. I mean, it's like showing your hand when you're playing cards. Right. At the end of the day, it's like, well, what do you what do you hand over and how do you affect the other players? I'm more interested in, well, here's the work. Here's the series, whether it's image text or whether I had to subcontract it out to some sign fabrication shop or not. Right. But second of all, I, I, I have that history. I was a sign painter. Right. right. I worked as a sign painter, hand painting signs for big signs. Right. Not not as big as Rosenquist, but but big right. signs like uh, right. biggest. Maybe it was like about 10 feet by, uh, I don't know, eight feet, something right. like that. Fairly big. So I did that. Right. And cool. um, yeah. and so the pictures are are, are generally uh, taken by me at some point. I found it more useful to hire someone so I could guide the model and right. so on. But the early ones were all taken by me. And I, I, I staged them. When you selected the models for the photos or the locations, did you have a formal casting call? Did you say, I want to find a downtrodden African-American woman in her 60s. I want to find a happy-go-lucky, uh, you know, no. bearded, bearded Caucasian man with a look of forlorn. I mean, how no. did you go about finding this? I never, I never, I never... I, just like what I, my response to you earlier about how language is always imprecise, like the idea that um, there could be variation in terms of the possible uh, persons to could fulfill a certain role, right? I didn't, I didn't really believe in that. I also don't, don't believe in this. There can be only one particular moment um, for a picture. Right? 
I don't believe in that. I, I know some photographers that really, really, you know, hyperbolize that 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 idea. Right. But I was never that, right? I think there's any number of given moments that you can that would be fine for me. So right. what I did was I never did a call for, you know, sometimes I did because I, you know, I wanted to do a picture of someone who's who's more old, but I didn't say what race, what, and so on. Sure, sure, sure. And so I, what, what I was more interested in was, uh, so I would ask, uh, seek out uh, uh, pictures and from, uh, you know, make a call and seek out pictures. And, and I, I, it was very few descriptors to it. And and I would get a wide range of different looking people. That's really like, cool. You look at the body of my work, it's like very multiracial. A lot of pictures of like kids and a lot of pictures of, people are really old right right which is not so common in in art right and um and i was doing this in the 80s and so um i i kind of realized oh okay i think it would okay i didn't think about it as for someone who's 70 years old but yeah maybe it's interesting it was that's how i responded to it okay here's a perennial favorite what fine artists are among your greatest influences i'm going to guess at a few John Baldessari, Lawrence Wiener, Robert Morris, Joseph Kosuth, and maybe Yoko Ono? I'm not sure exactly. And also, what literary, historical, and philosophical figures have influenced you the most and how? And are there any contemporary and new artists that interest you at all? Well, when I, when I was first introduced to art, the person probably the most important to me in terms of well-known artists was Dan Graham. Who, who recently passed away. The sculptor. Um, yeah, they did these kind of architectural uh, works with glass and metal and so on. And the reason why he was interesting to me was because he was the, he totally sh- shattered my image of what an artist was supposed to look like. Right. right? <laughs> that sounds a bit cruel because if no. you know what Dan looks like, he's, you know, he's very, and if you know him, he knew him, he was very, awkward right he was also looked awkward right. and he was socially awkward even though he was brilliant in many ways right, right. and he was kind of impossible to be with <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, in a social setting and so on and so but i but but i also i thought that was really good i mean, it was, so i remember when i met michael asher for the first time right the great la artist and yeah he was also like ran counter to my I mean, I don't know what image I had for an artist, but I guess it was closer to, uh, you know, the dashing with the beret or something. <laughs> but you have to remember, I was coming in from the mundane science world and coming into the art world, and and uh, I was kind of mesmerized uh, by all these students in, in art class. They looked way hipper. They dressed way hipper. It wasn't that they were better looking. It was more like they just looked hipper. They and so they looked better because they were hipper or something. <laughs> And um, and I was coming in uh, from a world where everyone's wearing a lab coat and you yeah. know and so on. So so I had this image, I guess, of what artists should be. And so when Dan Graham, I heard about oh this great artist Dan Graham who wrote and stuff. And then yeah. he showed up. I went, oh my god, that's Dan Graham, right? right? And uh, but then um, he, you know, I when I started when I made the full fledged jump into art, he was living in New York and. Um, I visited New York and I didn't know much about it. I visited New York and I thought, oh, I, maybe I'll write him. I remember I have his number and stuff. And so I phoned him up and, and he said, who's this? 
I said, okay. And he goes, he, of course, he didn't remember me. And right. I mentioned, uh, oh, you're in Vancouver. And he said, sure, let's go for dinner. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he showed me around the art world. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from him. But I also think it's a, it's a, of a certain period when art was still had the, still had the vestiges of Bohemia. And there was this, there was this kind of connection of uh, artists as a community. You know, I remember going to, you mentioned Baldessari, and I remember going to uh, this artist bar. I can't remember what it was called. I think it was called Chinese Chance or Max's Kansas City or whatever in New York. And so I went there and I met Baldessari, right? I mean, he's a giant of a guy. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and I thought, oh, wow, I'm at this bar and Baldessari is next to me. And, and I thought, well, geez, why would he talk to me? He's just, he's this big artist. I'm just young. I spent an hour talking to him. So cool. You know? It was totally cool, and um, and that's how I met Gosuth, right? Yeah. And, uh, but I also think it's of a certain time, and that time has passed. I don't think the art world's generous in that way anymore. I don't yeah. feel, you know, it, it was like I remember um, we uh, was, uh, I invited Gosuth, uh, you know, on the student uh, team to, um, you know, call uh, artists to come to Vancouver to give a talk. And so I said, um, oh, hi, Mr. Kosut, uh, would you come to Vancouver? And how much do you pay? He said, well, we, we can't pay much, uh, but you know, we can pay like maybe 150 bucks. And, but, we, you know, and if I ask, we're trying to uh, gather other instructors and they said they can contribute 25 and he goes, that's fine. <laughs> and I'm not thinking, today. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I'm chair of a department and, uh, you know, I have to, it's like pulling teeth. Yeah. Uh, how much do you want? Oh, I like $5,000, but I don't do studio visits. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have to make some concessions. Um, finally, what, uh, what, what are you working on now? And we have a couple minutes left. And what new projects do you hope to engage in, whether it's later this year or in the, the further future? What, what's going sure. on right now? Well, I, I'm, I've had several projects. One, I have my, uh, uh, my first solo exhibition in New York, Excellent. opening at Magenta Plains Gallery on... Um, May 13, they're op they're opening. Uh, they've been around for about five or six years, but they've been quite successful, and they're moving into a much uh, bigger space uh, on the Bowery. Fantastic. And so, I'm op opening there with with new series of work. I can't get into it on on a podcast in terms of what that sure. looks like. I continue to be very busy with a think tank I co-founded called Monument Lab, and uh, that has generated a lot of interest from around the world. Um, that may spawn a uh, curatorial project in Europe as well. And then um, I wrote two screenplays about indenture labor in America in the um, 1860s and 1880s. It's actually, I wrote two screenplays. And it's in uh, one of them's in development hell right now. So it kind of comes to life and then it dies and then it comes to life. Um, I didn't write it to be big in Hollywood. I wrote it um, and without even knowing that there's a, there was screenwriting software Right. And so I wrote it uh, the, the, true to me. Right. But then I got criticized from people who in the business that you're you've got too much detail. You're directing it too much. It's an amazing story, by the way. I'd love but, to read it. Yeah. And they, well, I can send it to you. And they said, yeah, please. It's, not, it's not it's not proper form. And, okay. I, and as an artist, I go. I don't know. That really graded me. I went, why does that be proper form if you like the story so much? If you didn't tell me you like the story so much. Then I'd go, okay, right? <laughs> story. I thought this part was really good and so, but it's it, not, you know, it's not written properly. 
Well, we're going to wrap up, Ken. I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, we hope to have you back for maybe an extended interview, uh, maybe leading up to your show in New York or in and around that time. That's great. What's the date on that? When, when is that coming? Well, May 13. May 13th. That's very Friday soon. Friday the 13th. <laughs> Friday the 13th. It's an omen of great success, I think. Ken, thank you again. I we deeply appreciate it. I'm your guest host, Stephen Wozniak, and thank you for listening to another podcast episode of Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art podcast.